The following conversation is with Jay Wiley. Jay has been an educator for over 40 years. He's now retired, but I was fortunate to have Jay. When I was in high school, he was my chemistry teacher. Jay taught chemistry and physics, and I was fortunate to be not only a student, but also a colleague, and now I consider him to be a friend. I think you'll appreciate his discussion with me on science and how faith also plays a role. Thank you for listening, and here is Jay Wiley. I think the cool thing about a podcast that's so different than the idea of a, a three-minute segment on like a news show mm-hmm. is you can actually sit for a long period of time and talk about things that are important. Mm-hmm. And you can actually ask follow-up questions versus you know shout over each other. Right. Because <laughs> we hear that a lot in news. Yeah. In fact, I was thinking about... There's a couple of meaningful memories I have when I was a junior in high school. You were my science teacher. Okay. The fall of the Berlin Wall happened the year I was in your class. And that, I think about that moment, because I remember when the, the Berlin Wall fell. Uh-huh. That meant that the Cold War was over. Right. And all of a sudden, this idea of like, the world is changing. Do you remember that moment? The piece of the uh, Berlin Wall is that rock on that shelf right there. Former student of mine, his name escapes me, it might come back, was in Berlin at the time of this event and knew that it was something that I would be interested in. And he brought that back for me. That's cool. And then, I remember that. And of course, I had to show it to the class, to you guys, to yes, let you know the impact. Yes, it passed around. Oh, yeah. And guess what? There was one student who didn't, did not get a chance to touch it. Would you go over there right now? I will do it. <laughs> it's right there, buddy. <laughs> Notice how the flat section of it is, must have been part of the wall itself, or the facing wall, I would imagine. All right, 30 years in the waiting. We got that taken care of. <laughs> You know, that's funny that you say that, because I normally, you know, a science teacher, I'm really big on kids literally physically engaging with the world and trying to understand science. And I mean that literally, not figuratively. I mean smelling, touching, feeling, hearing, seeing, all of those. And so, so a lot of times when I have a demonstration or something I want students to do or see, I will literally watch to see if they touched it, mm. to see if they picked it up, yeah. to see if they hefted it, or if they walked by. There's something about actually grabbing something in your hand yeah. and letting it go to your to memory or to your well, you know, I experience. Well, rem- I remember that moment, too, because I went to the Ronald Reagan Library. Yeah. There's a huge piece of the Berlin Wall yeah. right there. It, it was amazing to see, but also I saw the notes of the evil empire speech. Mm-hmm. And uh, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down that wall. That is, that is I remember there was a biography of Ronald Reagan, Peggy Noonan, and she said that people told him, do not, do not say this. And he did. Don't cause trouble. And uh, what I love is that it, he's the reason why that that wall was finally torn down. Well, I'm going to, uh, he's definitely one of the key figures yeah, yeah. in this. I'm going to give some, I'm going to tip my hat to Pope John Paul II, mm. who went to Poland, yeah. his native country, 
and yeah. said, do not be afraid. And that's a groundswell of movement that occurred there and spread. Think about now with Russia invading Ukraine, how when you talk to people who are historians who look at how we invaded Iraq, other countries, you start thinking about feels like a repeat of decisions that we look back and say, do we have to do all of those things? Could we have done it different, better? Did not know this conversation is going to go this way, but no. <laughs> this is awesome. <laughs> but, you know, you think about, man, you look back and think, could we have done things better and different? And, and then the idea of the amount of money being spent. And we don't know where a lot of that money is. Right. It's crazy. I'm a, I've been around a little bit. I tell people that uh, I was born in 51. That when I was born, there were 48 states, and Truman was president. And We'd come off of World War II, and we were the dominant country in the world after Europe was crushed and Japan was devastated. And Russia was still trying to figure out who they were and what yeah. they are. And so I had, but I was born in the shadow of the parents who lived through the Great Depression, yeah. lived through World War II, and then actually were wrestling with uh, the Korean War. And there was this prideful thing that the U.S. had it right. The U.S. was always going to get it right. U.S. was going to police the world. And so early on in our involvement in a lot of these things, going back to Vietnam and others, I was indifferent. I didn't know what, how to figure this. I, mm. I kind of erred on the side of the U.S. is right, the U.S. is mm. dominant. And then <laughs> recently I've been reflecting a little bit more on Eisenhower's statement of be careful of the, uh, what is it, the military-industrial complex. I never really quite understood what that meant. But I think I understand better now that there is a financial agency associated with the making of war. Yeah. And so I'm reconsidering all of these things from a new light. And uh, it's hard to, to reflect on it and know the rights and the wrongs and the good people and the bad people and the could-haves and the should-haves. But I now err on the side of, why are we doing that? I'm, I err on the side of, no, let's think this through. Yeah, I agree with you. I feel bad for people who are being bombed and, and shot and invaded. But it's also, is it our responsibility to essentially be involved in something where many people are going to be killed? Many people are going to, their homes are being destroyed. And and the rebuild of Ukraine isn't going to be the Russians. It's going to be, <laughs> it's going to be the West. Incredible to think about. Yeah, I just, uh, my heart breaks yeah. when I think of the loss of life for all of the, well, war has already always wiped out a significant portion of male population. Yes. I think about the, the predominant loss of life of men in, in Russia and in Ukraine and the devastating effect that has. We see what happened to post-World War uh, Russia with yes. all the loss of men. You can't just have thousands, tens of thousands of men in your in your community, die, yeah, and not think that that has an impact on the country. I just my heart breaks for that death, that unnecessary yeah. death for what? Yeah. So I don't have the answer. No, nope. I don't have. I, <laughs> I, I don't really, have <laughs> I'm really, I'm really not closely studied to it. But I, I, I don't understand why we're we're 
pushing more guns and ammunition and stuff yes. into this firefight. Yeah. I think uh, another memory I, I have is your intensity when you, as a teacher, and you would be intentional with that intensity as you discuss things like just now. Um, but I think, where does that intensity come from? I've always wondered. You know, that's a good question, Andrew, and I, and I don't know the answer to that. But it's, for me, it's been both a gift and a curse because <laughs> no. I, uh, yeah, uh, having passion is, uh, is generally a great thing, and I love it, and I love having passion. That being said, you know, it's gotten me in trouble as well in that I can, you know, I can go a little bit too far. I've, I've calmed myself down a little bit more, I think, as I've matured. But I, I embrace and appreciate that passion, and it's a genuine love. I was just a kid who was just smitten by nature and the world and the, the way that it operated, and people opened my eyes to the magic of science. And as wonderful as I thought it was and saw that it is, I wanted to be the tour guide for other mm. people to see how wonderful this is. And so it's not a show. It's not something I have to, like, pump up. Hey, you know, they say that if you're going to be a good teacher, you have to show some enthusiasm. So I'll kind of ratchet it up a little bit. I think you'll agree that it wasn't something I had to uh, turn on. It was something that was I actually had to tame a little bit. But uh, I loved being the tour guide with young, bright young men's minds. I loved working with teenagers. I, a lot of people think that they're goofballs, and they are. But when you talk to people late in life, they can remember aspects mm. of their high school formative years or that time frame probably more acutely than others. Other parts, well, maybe earlier parts of the youth, they can remember quite a bit distinctly. But then things start to roll together, smear together yeah. as life goes on. And so being with students in that time of their life, when they're going through the formative years and introducing them to uh, the world of science yeah. as they're thinking about careers, whether they're going to continue on in the, the, a career in science or whether they're going to have a career in something, but have feel that they understand basic fundamental aspects of science. I just wanted to be a person in their world that could help give them that. I like the idea of the tour guide. I never thought of being a teacher as a tour guide. That's pretty cool. Well, I was a coach, too. I coached wrestling and baseball along the way, and I would tell people that I actually, when you're coaching, you're, you have this vision on, you assess them where they are physically now, you take a look at the season, how much time you have, and what can you do to improve them? Where, where can you project them to be? And the same thing happens in the classroom. You assess them. Where are they? Yeah. And where can you get them? Where can you project them? Where can you get them to? They, you've, a veteran a teacher has worked and a coach has worked with kids over the years, and they have a better idea probably than the kids do in terms of what they can do. And so you're being a coach and or a tour guide. Yes. And so it's not like it was an ad adversarial situation where it was me against them. It was me teaming with them as we tackled this thing called science. Mm. Now, you went to UPS, correct? I actually went all over the place. <laughs> I, I was a boy who lived in the Lakewood area. We Actually, I grew up in Portland, moved up to Lakewood my sophomore year. Uh, graduated from Lakes High School. I wrestled and played baseball in high school. I wasn't a star, but I enjoyed them a lot. Sure. And uh, I was decent at science and math, and so I 
was going to go to college and do something in science and math. I Nobody in my family had ever gone to college mm. on either side. So it's not like I had a lot of uh, consulting or counseling from the home side, but I was scheduled to go to WSU for my freshman year and get involved with some science of sorts. <laughs> didn't even know which one, although I already kind of had a love for chemistry. And uh, my dad's business failed, and he told me midsummer that uh, uh, he couldn't afford to send me. So I quickly adjusted and went to the Tacoma Community College, and I actually had a great experience there. I, I did too. I had great experience. Yes. I had great instructors. Absolutely. Uh, and I I went there with the intention I was then transfer on to the university. So I took all my classes with the intention of them being transferable, and they were. And I got my associate's degree, and I was on a chemistry track. And then I transferred to w WSU. Okay. Uh, once again, my parents didn't have any money, so I'd been working on restaurants and car washes, and I'd saved up a little bit of money, and I took out a, I remember this, a $1,600 loan. And you thought, oh my goodness. <laughs> and off I went to WSU, <laughs> and I spent a year there, and had a great experience, uh, some intense courses, had some great physics instructors over there that inspired me. And uh, then a buddy of mine, Larry LaFleur, who we go all the way back to high school, he was like me, a science nerd who went to TCC, couldn't afford much of college, but he went to UPS and he found out about a work-study program. Mm. And, and, uh, and as a chemist in the oil petro uh, petroleum industry. So I transferred back over to UPS as a chemistry major to finish at UPS and get involved with the work-study program. And so even though I was technically almost a senior, I spent more three more years at UPS, not only finishing up my chemistry degree, but I decided I might want to teach this stuff, so I incorporated mm -hmm. in my teaching credentials and my student teaching. You would go to school a full uh full-time, and I'd pick up a couple of swing shifts at the uh, oil refinery as a chemist. And then you go to work full-time as a chemist during the day. Yes. And so by that rotation, that extends your, your graduation, plus picking up the education things. And so I came out of that with a great experience. It turns out the oil refinery would only hire students from UPS, PLU, and UAW who were aspiring chemistry majors, and they only had one full-time chemist. As soon as you graduate, you were out of the system. Oh, okay. What that meant was is that there was a real turnover of the personnel, so you weren't stuck doing one little test tube job the whole time. By the time you'd gone through there in the three or four years that I was there, I'd gone from asphalt to jet fuel to octanes to blending gasolines mm. to... I, I couldn't believe what they were having a 22-year-old guy do. <laughs> I remember you talking about this. Yeah. I mean, because I, I, I remember you discussing about fuel. Yeah. Wow, that's crazy. I was essentially the chef for 80,000 <laughs> barrels of gasoline. And they would tell me the the research octane and the motor octane and the 50% boiling point and the vapor pressure. And I would, it was a fantastic experience. And I felt very, very confident at that time in my chemistry. I'm going to make another, I'm going to go back to my education here because sure. I want to mention Wayne Craft. When I came to the work study program, I met Wayne Kraft, who had been at UPS the whole time, and he came from a, a modest family. His dad was a mechanic in Spokane. So he, he needed money, and so he got involved with the work-study program. And we just paralleled the rest of our career together, became very good friends. I just went to Africa with him on a remote a mission in remote Kenya. At any rate, I realized right away that 
Wayne knew, understood the science better than I did. Mm. He had a sense for what was really going on. I was kind of a book smart guy, and he was a conceptual, he was book smart and conceptual. And I was almost embarrassed with myself as I kind of looked at myself next to Wayne. And I vowed then and there that if and when I go and teach science, I want kids to be like Wayne. I didn't Mm. want them to be like me. So go back to the thing I mentioned earlier about sniffing, touching, feeling. Mm. I insist on my kids experiencing the science as opposed to just looking at the book and understanding the questions as they come off the page. It was a huge piece in the theme that ended up being the backbone of all of my teaching. One lab I remember vividly because of the amount of experimentation was the candle lab. Mm -hmm. I think it's a brilliant lab Mm -hmm. and I'm not sure if it's done now, but the, the understanding of what's going on in the candle, simple candle Mm -hmm. that we take so for granted Mm -hmm. and all the things that we do. It's pretty cool. The the candle lab. This is, so you just put down a book, the chemical history of a candle. It's, it's uh, the information from the lectures of Michael Faraday. The candle lab that I did was arguably one of the most powerful things I did in my teaching of chemistry. That's quite a statement. What I would do, the first thing in the class, and here I have honors chemistry. I've got the kids who think they're going to be doctors and engineers, and they're, they're quote-unquote smart. And the first thing I do is I pull out a candle. And they're like, well, well, I thought we were doing the advanced chemistry. Okay, smart Alec, just why don't you light the candle? All right, what do you see? Well, what's going on? And I take them through a venture in the burning of a candle, and they go through this world, and they are shocked by their ignorance of something that is right before them all the time and that is a burning candle. If you can be, quote-unquote, this smart and be that ignorant of something so common as a burning candle, what else are you missing? Yeah. And so it's a recentering on the observation of things. My six-year-old grandson, he turned six yesterday or the day before, he has this silly little demonstration that he repeats and repeats, and he did it probably 16 times yesterday. Okay. You take a full glass of water, even partial glass of water. You take a card, you put it over the, the glass. I know you've done this demonstration, Andrew, and you turn it over, and mm. if you hold it gently mm-hmm. enough with the glass upside down and the card on the opening yes. of the glass full of water, if you pull your hand away, the card will stay at the opening. He was smitten by that, and he did it again and again and again. Each time, the, he would disturb the card. The card would fall off. The water would come out. It would splash all over him. He'd laugh, and he'd go do it again a different way, a different style. That engagement yes. in the world is how we learn. That's why Wayne knew things that I didn't, because Wayne grew up the son of a mechanic. And he was in the garage, and he was doing things. He was lifting mm-hmm. things. He was leveraging things. He saw things change phase. He was paying attention. Me, 
you know, I was out playing baseball or something. Sure. I don't know what, but the candle. It's uh, I, I just went to a reunion where the 80s reunion, there was kids from Gig Harbor from okay. the 80s that were, it would, we met up at uh, the Artendale Golf Course. And uh, I, I don't can't believe how many of them commented about, oh, I remember your class, and then the candle lab. The candle lab. The, these people graduated 40 years ago. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, re I remember... Uh, we're having a beer at the golf course, and they're talking... <laughs> <laughs> about the candle lab. Well, I think it, it's one of those moments where ahas, not just one, but many aha moments. Like, oh, I never thought of that. Never thought the candle would function that way. Oh, if I put aluminum foil and wrap it around a wick, mm. and and all of a sudden the candle, the, the flame starts to diminish. Mm-hmm. And then you're like, what's going on? And then you realize that mm -hmm. the melting of the wax mm -hmm. and the, the wax becoming now a fuel mm -hmm. airborne and it's and it flames. It's just, it was, I remember that, that moment of, of having epiphanies. Mm -hmm. And I think that was a cool thing about your class, epiphanies. So then I remember my senior year, you offered second semester organic chemistry. And I thought, I'm doing that. Oh, class. yes. And so we experienced all kinds of the idea of chemicals that had smells and chemicals that did, uh -huh. you know, and it was just a really, it opened up this idea that maybe I can study this because yeah. I didn't know if I was going to go to college at that time. Like you, I'm, you know, my parents did not go to college. We didn't really talk about college. Mm -hmm. But when everyone around me, and, you know, we had some brilliant people in my class, I was thinking, like, I, I, can I do this? And so TCC was a great option. I was still teaching martial arts, and that was my income. And then going to uh, Central to get my, earn my bachelor's mm -hmm. degree. I was thinking I was going to be a physical therapist. And thank goodness I went into teaching because mm -hmm. I would have gotten bored right away. <laughs> <laughs> and although I think physical therapy is great, great and everything, but I think for me, I remember that the challenge of teaching, having good teachers in my life, wanting to become a teacher, thinking I was going to teach martial arts on the side forever. Mm -hmm. Life happened in a good way. You know, for me, being a biology major, I put certain things, um, and, and martial arts helped us. I put certain things that were really important in my life in the, in the background, mm -hmm. like faith. Mm -hmm. And faith became uh, very important in the experience of having brain surgery, my mm -hmm. first year of teaching. And faith, as a scientist, I remember thinking people, when they knew I was a man of faith and a science teacher, they were like, how, could you, how can you be a science teacher? And it's like, well... Some of the best scientists in the history of the world were men of, and women of faith. I was wondering about, I know you're a man of faith, mm -hmm. and I'm wondering about your faith moment in your life. And maybe not a moment, but being a science teacher, you probably get this. We heard it from John Mameen where it's like, oh, I feel sorry for you. <laughs> like, I feel sorry that you're a science teacher and that you're also but not knowing that he was a man of faith. 
I don't understand what the problem is. I, I really don't. I'll, I'll, I come at it at pretty simple, really. And uh, we can almost start with the living cell, the complexity of the living cell. And I tell this to my students. I say, anybody who's ever, who has the most rudimentary understanding of the complexity of the living cell should be shocked and amazed. Yeah. Absolutely. Stunned and shocked and amazed and never be unshocked and amazed. Yeah. In other words, it should be the most shocking and amazing revelation that you physically have seen. The, the realization of what takes place inside the living cell. And you, you just go, like, how does that happen? And, of course, the answer is, I don't know. St. Thomas Aquinas, I kind of start from there. St. Thomas Aquinas said that God has revealed himself in two forms, both in the spirited word of the Bible, but also in his creation. What is it? Psalm 19 the heavens declare the glory of God. And I also believe that God is not deceitful. And so there is nothing conflicting between science, which is really the stu- science is just the study of God's creation. Theology is the study of God's word. Now, we are human beings, and as such, we are flawed. And we can be flawed on both levels, both in our theology and our science, as we continue to work at them. Or seek them to know. Your early scientists wanted to know more about God and thought that they could understand more of God by knowing God's creation. By seeing the creation, you know more of the creator. All of science kind of builds on itself. We can talk about the first person to do this and the first person to do that, but I see it as a stream. Even Isaac Newton, who is considered to be a huge breakthrough, claims that he stood on the shoulder of giants. He realized that he was in a strategic location. Yes, he was smart as can be, but he also had the accumulation of all the info that had come up to his point and put it together. As these laws of nature were being revealed to him, he said it felt like he was in a privileged position to walk in the master's workshop. Mm. As if God's very hand, he got to walk and see how things were being done. It was very privileged to him, and it put him closer to God. What's interesting, a side note on Newton, by the way, is if you take it all, uh, take a look at all of his writings, he wrote more on uh, theology than he did on science. Mm. Uh, a lot of people some, don't know that. No, and a, a lot of it goes sideways. He spent a lot of time on revelations, but he thought that God gifted me with this mind, and it's revealed the laws of physics. Maybe this mind that he gifted me with can reveal the word of the Bible, but you know, and he spent his a lot of time on it. But my point is, is that science is really the study of God's creation, and as we look at it, there really isn't a conflict. The conflict is all stirred up by by who, by what, by why. Yeah, I don't understand the so conflict. So, Jay, I'd like to go back to the idea of uh, when did you kind of first realize, like, hey, I there's a there's a God that cares about me. You know, that's <laughs> I. I, I like to steal a, a line from a song, and the long and crooked road that led me straight to him. Mm. As I reflect back on God's work with me that I didn't fully understand at the time, but as I look back, he has been working with me for whatever reason. And 
it's not, I don't have a moment. I have kind of like a lifeline that has a series of events that has matured me more, so to speak. Uh, there's a couple of key events. Uh, my wife, Susie, is Christian. And so when I started seeing her, I realized that she was focused on the Lord and she seemed to be dialed into what was going on. So it, it, it yeah, you married, you married very well, by the way. Yeah, I, I, I married great. <laughs> I married great. So her pathway towards the Lord inspired me and, and brought me along. And then there were some other people, and we can I can name them in strategic locations. Again, some people might cite a moment. I, I see a, a series of dots along the way. As you know, later on, I start, when I was teaching at Gig Harbor, uh, my faith started strengthening with being with Susie and now having children and realizing the, the importance of that. In that midst, back in the 90s, I, I had some tragic things that happened in my life. I, I lost my brother, my sister, and my mother, all within the span of 11 months. Oh, man. It was AIDS, alcoholism, anorexia, and uh, lung cancer. Bang. And uh, I, I could have gone a couple different ways. I could have just been pissed off at the world and saying, why is this all going wrong? Instead, for whatever reason, I went the other way. I took the brokenness, uh, there is a God and I'm not him. And for whatever reason, God has me living. My, my dad, by, by the way, passed away a couple of years after that too, so I lost all of them. Uh, fortunately, I married Susie. Susie was one of six children in a tremendous family who embraced me. So I basically had mm. another family, a loving family. But going through that brokenness, and I felt God has me living for something. And so I'm, I have a loving family, and I'm to live, and I'm to embrace it. Yeah. And, and what does that life mean, and how can I be a light for others? And I don't know what that means, but I do feel that I've been asked to be in some people's lives. Yes. And it's... It's a great place to be, I think. It's a, I don't have a, so, a clean so, no, fix actually, up there. No, actually, I think, so you're, you're retired. I'm uh, retired. Yeah. And so that whole idea of, you know, you are spending time with grandkids, but mm -hmm. you're also doing other things. You're not sitting watching TV all day. You're doing things. <laughs> yeah, I I taught 30 years in the public schools. I started a small school in eastern Washington called Connell. I loved it. It's a farming community. I would drive combine in the summertime for wheat harvest. And then I taught at Peninsula High School, uh, which is where I student taught, by the way. And then I taught at Gig Harbor. You know, I student taught at Peninsula, too. There you go. That's so, crazy. There you go. <laughs> I did not know you student taught at Peninsula High School. Yeah. That's funny. And uh, and then I, after 30 years in the public, uh, I retired from public, and then I tacked on 13 years at, at Bellarmine and, and had a blast. I, I loved my teaching right to the end. Mm. And then blessed with a family, we have uh, two children that are now adult children. My son, Ben, is married to Jenny. They have two children in Tacoma, aged two and six, two and a half and six. My daughter, Emily, is married to Andy, and they have two children, ages three and six. In Seattle, and uh, so Susie and I are blessed to have uh, grandkids in our lives, and we have health, and we're in a position where we have some control over our life, and so we get to be in their lives. That's awesome. 
And I'm, I'm pretty active other than that too. Yeah. I just, I like being an active person. I'm a kind of a recreation guy between uh, water skiing, snow skiing, and golf. They're kind of my things. Yeah, I remember your, uh, that's uh, water skiing. You had shared about that years ago. And then uh, <laughs> I think we went out on your boat. Um, oh, yeah. It was a while ago. Yeah. yeah. So that's fun. That graph over there is like a 25-year graph of my activities. <laughs> One of the lines is golfing, one of the lines is water skiing, and one of the lines is snow skiing. So you can see they've tapered off a little bit, but they're still going strong. That's good. I, I was going to say, you are definitely a scientist. I love it. <laughs> well, the nerdy part about doing that is, you know, you can go into snow skiing season and say, hey, you know, I think I'm going to get up in the slopes a couple of times. And all of a sudden, it's uh, almost June. You're going, oh, I didn't get up very much. Mm. And so I'm kind of intentional about getting yeah. up and doing things. That's good. You start off this conversation about science mm. and everything, and you talked a little bit, you start off with the, the cell. And I'm thinking about the, the cell because when you said, hey, this is, like, you've got to look at the cell, how complex it is. And it is. It's mm -hmm. amazingly complex. And scientists have tried to, to reduce strip away aspects of the cell and say, what makes a cell function? And I believe they found that you, the cell needs six genes in order to operate. Mm -hmm. If you take one gene away, mm -hmm. the cell doesn't work. Mm -hmm. I believe that's the idea of irreducible complexity. Mm -hmm. I remember uh, just thinking in terms of, of, of that. What's your, what's your idea about irreducible complexity and, and what impact does that have about things like the concept of, of life and then also evolution? My ideas have changed some over the years. And, and, and here's one thing that I've, I've tried to be, do, <laughs> understand. And that is, I don't have a fight in the dog, so to speak. A dog in the fight? Yeah. I don't have a dog in the fight in that God has done what God has done, and God is doing what God is doing, and my it's not dependent upon my understanding. So I, I, I'm okay right there. So if it doesn't make sense to me, that's, you know, I'm okay. It's not, not like God can only do things that make sense to me. Yeah. And, that's, and I want it to be this way. I want God to have done it a certain way. And I think some of us come into the story like that, and I have. Like, well, he couldn't have done it. Evolutionary, I come into it with a bad attitude about evolution, so I'm going to disprove evolution. Or no, I want evolution because that, and I'm going to prove evolution. So you're coming into it with a bias. And I have come into it with a bias, and I'm pretty open on it now. I've, To me, I struggle with evolution because of the living cell. Behe calls it, you know, Darwin's black box. It's, so it's kind of like, okay, uh, you can do your evolution if you start with a living cell, and then if you take this living cell, and then you branch off into all these various organisms. But wait a second here. Let's start that again. You get a, you know, like in bingo, you get a free square in the middle. <laughs> you get a living cell. That's that's not a free square in the middle of bingo. That's the game. You got a living cell. You got the whole package. So how would you get that living cell? I don't know the answer to that. Nobody else knows the answer yeah. to that, by the way, because it's my understanding that the living cells start to show up about a billion years after the Earth is in existence, which is about three billion years ago. 
And so I struggle with that. How can you, in the billion years, come up with a living cell? That seems like a long time, but I contend it's not a sufficient amount of time to come up with such a miraculous thing called the living cell. So I've come along with the idea of God's guiding hand in evolution. Mm. That somehow, and I don't understand it completely, that there are aspects of evolution, but just on if we go back to the beginning of atoms bouncing around, bumping into one another, and then four and a half billion years later, you and I are having this conversation. Sure. Now, that might seem like a long time, but if you really take a look at the complexity of the mechanisms, it's not a sufficient amount of time. So that's what I mean by the guiding hand of God. Is God using evolution in an accelerated and or a guided way to get to where we are now? I don't know the answer. Mm -hmm. But it may be something along those lines. Or did God just out of hand, here's a living cell, go from there. Or here's a living cell, now let's move it into a jellyfish and then go up into worms and ultimately into, I don't know that mechanism. I just know that the complexities are overwhelming and God's involved in it in some way to get there. Or... Is it that God created the fish of the sea, mm-hmm. birds of the air, mm-hmm. animals, plants? Yeah. And then and and the idea of the the six days of creation may not be necessarily days, it could be epics. Oh yeah. Yeah. I'm I'm a uh, well then you get into what's called the young earth and the old earth. It's to me it's a theological battle that's been raging. In other words, when the theory of Dar of evolution came out some people uh, looked at this as being anti-religious. Don't know why. Maybe they figured that this means that human beings aren't as super special because they have relatives that are animals. Okay. Don't know why that happens but or why that is considered to be not special because mankind separates themselves from the animals. We're not just another animal. We are separate in our ability to... Forgo today for tomorrow to actually, what we find is when modern man arises, we start seeing artwork, we start mm. seeing some sort of relationship or spiritual ceremonies that are taking place as man is trying to find a relationship with God. What is that about human beings that separates them from the animals? This ability to have this consciousness to Again, forego today and plan for tomorrow, something that animals don't do. Uh, I know ants build, uh, bees build hives and stuff like that, but it's not a conscious thing that they're doing. It's a mechanical thing that they're doing. If we take a look at our mitochondria DNA studies, I think mitochondria DNA studies are fascinating in that, believe it or not, we've done a pretty comprehensive sampling of everybody in the world, not everybody, but samplings to represent essentially uh, the bulk of the people in the world. And we find through mitochondria DNA, which tells us, by the way, lineage to mothers, to great-mothers, to great-grand-grand-grandmothers, and so on through the mothers, that we are in fact all related to a common ancestor. Mm. And in fact, the anthropology is now done with DNA more than it's done with actually finding... (laughs) But anthropological DNA studies refer to this common ancestor as mitochondria Eve. Uh, 
And so as we take a look around, yes, we do look different because we have branched off from mitochondria Eve at different parts of the branch of the family tree, and we've lived in different parts of the world, and we've accumulated different characteristics. But deep down, we are all brothers and sisters. And the same thing is true with Y-chromosome studies. Y-chromosome studies find out lineage through or information into the fatherhood branch. And we find a similar common branch there where we are, and they refer to him as Y-chromosome Adam. So once again, we say if you go back far enough in the family tree, we are all brothers and sisters related to one another. That's an interesting thought about the idea of, of the chromosome studies and a common ancestor, as well as looking at people around the world, different traits, different features, but still homo mm-hmm. sapiens, still able to you know mate because we're, we are mm-hmm. you know, homo sapiens. But then when we look at genetic changes or genetic modifications, like the idea of evolution, in order for us to evolve from one species to another, there has to be some kind of genetic change Mm -hmm. and i find that to be a struggle and a challenge because there are mechanisms that repair dna in replication like dna polymerase it actually is like an editor it it makes sure that when that dna is Mm -hmm. replicated it fixes it because there are errors with you know with different interpretations and it's like oh we cannot proceed in order for us to believe that we can evolve scientifically, you have to think a lot of, like, like an error that happened to be a positive trait that benefited the organism to be able to move forward. Yep. And then in my mind, you know, the second law of, of thermodynamics yeah. is mm-hmm. there's, it's nature, things don't go from uh, disorder to order, it goes from order to disorder. Correct. I think genetically, that's the same issue. Fighting up the hill of, yeah, to become more and more organized is, yeah, that's a, that's a stroke. The second law of thermodynamics and evolution are a, a difficult thing to reconcile. Yeah. I'll, I want to bring up two other things, if I could, and that yeah. is uh, the Big Bang Theory is is uh, I love the Big Bang Theory. <laughs> <laughs> By the way, if you, if you want to do some research on the Big Bang Theory, you're going to have to scroll through pages of the TV show to get, <laughs> to, get to the actual Big Bang Theory. But, the Big Bang Theory essentially states that it's it's amazing how it's fine-tuned since I've been teaching. It used to be somewhere between 10 and 20 billion years ago. Then they kind of put it right about 15. Now they've got it about 13.7. So the precision is getting tighter. But at any rate, about 13.7 billion years ago, uh, the universe began. And it, what it began is it began out of nothingness. Now, when I say these things, I'm not. Re- it sounds like I'm reading from Genesis, but I'm actually reading from the cosmological cosmologists page. Out of nothingness came space, time, matter, and energy. In other words, there was a moment before that event where those things didn't exist. I can't get my mind wrapped around that. What that means is that there was actually a beginning of time. I don't know how to understand before time. Sure. But a transcendent God would exist in and out, independent of the universe. Therefore, the, the transcendent God is existent before time. You have the Big Bang. You have the 
out of nothingness, space, time, matter, and energy are created. The misconception about the expanding universe is that the universe is infinite in space and the matter is just expanding into it, and that's incorrect. As it turns out, there actually is an edge to the space. It's the space itself that is expanding. A lot of people liken it to like a rising loaf of raisin bread where the loaf represents the space and the raisins represent the galaxies. So there is an edge to the space. The universe has a finiteness to it. I, I have an ongoing debate with anybody on infinity. I believe infinity is a concept that exists theoretically, but has sure. no physical uh, parallel and or existence. But the Big Bang, before the Big Bang, there was nothing. Well, before the Big Bang, we don't know. Yeah, yeah, it's, we say that before the Big Bang, and this, again, this is what the scientists yeah. say, the information before the informa uh, Big Bang is unknowable, to us mm. because it's inaccessible to us. Same thing is true for anything outside the beyond the edge of the space. It is unknowable to us because it's inaccessible yep. to us. So then, after, when the Big Bang occurred, mm -hmm. all matter in the universe that has ever existed exists. Correct. It could be back and forth between matter and energy because EM equals MC squared shows that matter and energy can move back and forth. Matter and energy are two different forms of the same entity, just like space and time are two different entities of the same entity. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and uh, what you have here is another thing that occurred is as scientists start taking a look at the universe, they start looking at these interesting uh, constants we refer to them as. I teach physics, and one of the things I do is I give the students a list of constants so they don't have to memorize them. The speed of light, the charge of an electron, the mass of a proton, Planck's constant. There's just a series of these numbers that seem to be embedded in the fabric of nature. We're familiar with pi. Pi is a number that just shows the relationship between the diameter of a circle and the circumference of the circle. Nobody made up the term pi. The term pi, that 3.14, so on, is a number that is just characteristic of the fabric, of the geometry, of the creation. As you take a look at these numbers, at first they're interesting, but scientists start looking at them closer and realizing they have to be exactly the way they are. Mm. They refer to this as the fine-tuned universe. What that means is, is that if you were to take one of these numbers, charge of an electron, mass of a proton, speed of light, Planck's constant, and tweak it just a little bit, the whole thing unravels. The universe doesn't exist. Atoms can't exist. Molecules can't exist. This thing is like on a knife edge. If these numbers aren't exactly as so, and it screams of a maker who made a universe that was fine-tuned. Once again, your secular scientists see this, and they scream, what can we do about it? So what do they do? They come up with the multiverse. Why do they come up with the multiverse? 
It just so happens that our universe is perfectly tuned, and the way to have a perfectly tuned universe is to have an infinite number of universes. And if you have an infinite number of universes, one of them is going to hit the jackpot, and that's where we live. I think that's, uh, I think that's awesome. I love that what you just shared. When we look at Earth, the third rock from the sun that goes around the sun, if it's any closer or any further away, Earth cannot inhabit life. If oxygen levels are just a little bit more or just a little bit less, life does not happen. Nitrogen, the same, the same thing. It is amazing to look the complexity of life that it actually existed on Earth. And then you think in terms of the notion of just one thing, just one or one idea of, of how the, the world revolves around sun, and it doesn't work. Earth is the ultimate three bears story. Too big, too small, just right. Mm. Too hot, too cold, just yeah. right. The axes of the earth, too, too steep, too shallow, just right. The... <laughs> if you know i talked about anybody who has the most cursory understanding of the living cell if they're not s- shocked and amazed there's so, I, I i'm stunned what, how can you not be if you understand the earth and just think of it as just another little planet going around you're missing it it's a magical place, and uh, oh, we found a whole bunch of planets. Certainly, one of them. Oh, you know what we're going to do? We're going to go to Mars. We'll just, you know live in a dome and plant some potatoes, and we'll be okay. Anybody that thinks that we're going to screw up this Earth, which goes to the climate hysteria, by the way, <laughs> <laughs> and then we're just going to go on to another one. I, I I don't understand what how they're thinking. They they don't understand the complexity of what's going on here in the biosphere of the Earth. The biosphere of the Earth, which is the membrane where all life exists, is the depths of the oceans is as many as seven miles. The top of Mount Everest is sort of six miles. So what do you have about a thirteen mile membrane? Membrane a thirteen mile membrane that everything lives in. You've got the magnetic poles without this is one of the things that uh, makes uh, space travel basically impossible for long term and that is you know in star wars or in uh, they would have what was the star trek they would have the force field we have a force field it's called a magnetic field magnetic field shields us from the sun's solar wind which are uh, deathly radioactive uh, charged particles coming our way. We expose astronauts to that when we take them to the moon and elsewhere, and they can handle it for a while in their spacesuits and the like. But you take down our magnetic, our protective force field, magnetic field, and it's it's over with for us. We have to live in caves. Do other planets have a similar? They may have one. You know, Venus uh, is our sister planet. It's like us in yeah. so many different ways. It's but uh, it doesn't have the rotation. You know, to create a magnetic field, you need an iron core. We're assuming that they have a very similar iron-nickel core that we do. But like a top, you have to spin. We get our magnetic field because we have an iron-spinning top core. You know, one more thing about the multiverse, and that is the reason coming up with the multiverse is, as I pointed out, is they recognize that the, 
uh, our universe is so fine-tuned, it seems so magical in that regard that how can we recognize, how can we reconcile this and not have a supernatural being creating this? We come up with the infinite number of universes, and therefore you can statistically get anything you want if you give me infinity. The problem with this is that multiple universes are not observable, and science was supposed to restrict itself to the observable. So science is using the unobservable to explain something away that is bothering them. Mm. So the multiverse. <laughs> it's, a, it's a silly fad. Yes. yes. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And it's a really silly fad. And I, I hear people talk about it enough where you think, do you, do you actually believe this? Do you, and, and one, there's no evidence of it. And then two... It's also the idea of explaining away existence is, is it is comical. This comes back to the courage to seeking the truth, and I believe this is uh, this is true for Christians too. I mean, sometimes just because oh, I'm a Christian and I'm going to seek the truth, okay, but really, no, you're going to seek a filtered truth. Seeking the truth is difficult. Mm. It's hard because you have all of this stuff going on and piercing fog you have to be very intentional about it 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 takes a lot of work to seek the truth but i believe that's our pathway forward god is not deceitful he's not saying don't look there if if you want to be a scientist you have to pretend like you don't know things no no he's saying come bring it on so you say god's not deceitful I, i i heard you see this a couple times and i think it's a cool image can you kind of dive into that a little bit more? If we have people who are representing God, and we have people who are representing science, and if they're at each other's throats, there's something wrong here. <laughs> yes. Because <laughs> God is like, hey, what's going on? Yes, I'm the creator, and you're setting my creation in science. And yes, I am the I am God, and I, I inspired these words that you're reading. Why are you guys fighting about these two things? It's between you two. It's, it's a human being problem. It's not a God problem. And so we have to figure this out amongst ourselves, and it's the seeking of the truth. And I, and I believe, and once again, I think it softened me a little bit on the evolution. I was a hardcore, no, God created everything in, in, a, in a wand. Not in a six days. I, I was, uh, there's the young earth and the old earth school of thought. The old earth accepts the fact that the universe is 13.7 billion years old, the sun is 5 billion years old, the earth is 4.5 billion years old, the Cambrian uh, explosion happened a billion, and so on. That's old earth. That's what the evidence... The young earth came as a response to Darwin. They figured that, well, we don't like this. Darwin's saying that we came from... Their, their interpretation says we came from apes, and that's not doesn't sound very biblical to me, like I said. Yeah. Doesn't sound very biblical to you? Okay, whatever. You're saying you know God's way? Okay, fine. So what we'll do is to destroy his evolution, we'll take away his time. The earth is only 6,000 years old. The earth is only 10,000 years old, as gone through lineages in the Bible, if you take a look at begat, begat, begat. But that's not... That's not real. You can't be a scientist and look at the earth and say it's 10,000 years old. So that's doing a mental gymnastics act, which is not being seeking the truth, because you're trying to hold on to your biblical view of that. So it's, it's a difficult pathway to 
walk in saying that I want to know the truth. I don't think God is being, no, I know God is not being deceitful to me. He's had his creation. He has these words. It's my job to walk through and reconcile with all these crazy voices going on around me. How do I find the path and walk and walk down it? So speaking of uh, crazy voices, I remember when I was early 90s, went to uh, college to study science to become a, a science teacher. And, and I remember the word global warming was starting to happen. And mm-hmm. I remember uh, my first year of teaching, there was a girl who was, she walked in class. And uh, what happened was like across the street from where she lived, they cut down, a, cleared the land to build a house. And she was in tears, clearly upset. And I was like, what's wrong? And she was like, the world's coming to an end. We're tearing down these trees. And, and I'm like, whoa. And I realized, like, there's this emotional response of the idea of global warming and our, and our environment. And, and yeah, if I'm a kid and I see my next-door neighbor of the trees I played around, because it happened to me uh, and where I grew up, because I remember thinking, you know, we would go to – climb trees in the woods and, and, you know, mess around. But I remember that hysteria of the environment and the response. And I think there's a difference between being aware of, like, yeah, we want clean water, clean air, but then we also have this hysteria about, like, the world's coming to an end and we're going to be completely destroying the economy. And I, so you made the comment about uh, this hysteria. What's your what's your take on it? And there's all kinds of hysteria out there, and that is, first of all, global uh, climate change. Uh, do you believe in climate change, Jay? Well, yes. The yeah. we used to used to be like under a couple of miles of ice right here where my house sits. Yes. <laughs> so yes, I'm very familiar with uh, climate change. Uh, the question is: is is man impacting climate change? We can have that conversation. And how can we quantify that? And how can we measure that? And can, or can we measure that even? And so on. Where are we in the globe in terms of hunger, in terms of forests, in terms of greenery, in terms of temperatures, in terms of all those things? So the climate hysteria is what I refer to it as, has become a religion on its own. Uh, the earth has become, I think we have more forestry area in the United States than we did in the turn of the century. Uh, I just read a thing where the earth itself is as much as 10% greener, primarily in semi-arid areas. Some attribute that to the increase in, uh, the slight increase in carbon dioxide in that uh, the semi-arids were supposed to completely go arid and the arids were supposed to grow, but it's gone the other way. The semi-arids are growing and the Sahara is actually shrinking. They attribute this to the increase in carbon dioxide. Plants open their pores to breathe carbon dioxide, uh, but when they open their pores, they lose water. By having a greater amount of carbon dioxide, they open their pores to a smaller amount, so therefore they're actually doing better. Uh, by the way, that 10% increase is equivalent to about the size of the United States. Crop yields have increased. People out of poverty for the last 40 years in terms of ab poverty. Those numbers are very impressive to see what has happened in the world in a good way. People who are, again, out of abject poverty, being able to find something to eat, being able to have shelter. Basically, starvation uh, today has been now relegated to just political strife. 
is the is the only reason that we're having starvation in certain areas. My view is where we're going is uh, the climate hysterical people are making it very difficult to make adult decisions as to what to do. In terms of our energy sources, you know, we've gone from things like wood to coal. Coal plays, still coal, I think, is about 30, uh, 35% of the power in the world, uh, to petroleum, to natural gas. I know natural gas could be, should be considered part of petroleum, but I'm going to separate it out, to nuclear. And if you're really concerned about carbon dioxide, then you should take a look at those scales, wood to coal to petroleum to natural gas to nuclear. And it's a natural climb up, and each time you reduce your carbon footprint to the point where you get to nuclear, it's zero. Natural gas is fantastic. I could burn a natural gas burner right here in this room, and we could breathe the exhaust because it would only be carbon dioxide and water. It has a low carbon print and is very clean. So I don't understand if you're generally concerned about the environment, what is what are the, the climate hysterical people doing? In fact, now we're realizing there is a conflict between the environmentalists and the climate hysterical people in that are we ruining the environment for this carbon chase that we're doing and that is the windmills that are in the paths of the right whales along the uh, coastline or the Atlantic coast what about the bird kills that are uh, that are happening with the windmills what about the tortoise habitats that are being wiped out for these solar uh, farms why do those get a pass Mm. So we have this environmental issue concern. Now it's in conflict with the climate hysteria. So if you're really worried about poor people in developing countries, every time you do something to tick up the price of energy, you are crushing those people at the very end. You're not crushing somebody on Capitol Hill in Seattle. You're crushing somebody in a third world country who's at the edge of being able to eat. That's what yes. you're doing. You know, in, and I was, my mom died at the age of 59 of lung cancer. So when they start jacking up the tax on cigarettes, I was going, go for it, baby. Because cigarettes have nothing to contribute. Only yeah. death. Yeah. Not even in, <laughs> only death. Petroleum, what you have your climate hysteria people is treating petroleum like cigarettes putting a syntax on it to avoid the use. Well, what about the guy who's got a paint company and he's got a, he has to commute from Seattle to Issaquah to Puyallup? What are you doing to him? Oh. What about those people in third world countries who are on the edge of starvation and by, every time you jack up the price of oil just a tick, what does that mean for the production of fertilizer? Fertilizer production and oil go hand in hand. Every time you tick up the price of Petroleum, you tick up the price of uh, fertilizer, you tick up the price of food. It's that simple. Mm. People on Capitol Hill in Seattle, not a problem. People on the very edge of starvation of third world countries, death. That is a powerful uh, illustration, Jay. In order to have an electric car, you need chemicals that are harvested in West Africa by young people, children, who are crawling in these uh, tunnels in order to get cobalt. It is not a healthy existence. It would never be allowed or permissible in the United States because of OSHA. 
it wouldn't wouldn't happen. But we are turning a blind eye when we buy our 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 phones that have cobalt our because of the battery, and then then our for electric car the amount of cobalt, but it is tremendous. I feel like we're kind of using outside of the United States in order to make our electric cars. If you are supporting electric cars, and like you said, the mining of cobalt in third world countries in Africa, uh, wind power and solar power, and you think that's going to save the world, you are intellectually being dishonest or ignorant. I don't know which. And if you say that you want to reduce carbon, let's say that's your issue. I don't know if that's a big issue, but okay, let's say that is your issue. And you are against natural gas and you are against nuclear. Now, I don't know what the proper term is for you. Because natural gas is the, re- is the primary reason why the United States is the country in the world that had the greatest reduction in carbon output because of our push for natural gas. So if you're going to say you want to reduce carbon, but you don't want to expand natural gas, I don't know who you are or what you're doing. And if you want to reduce carbon, and if you're against nuclear, I, I don't see what, what's, how are we having a conversation here? There's that, uh, there's a passion, Jay. Here's this one too. <laughs> the International Monetary Fund, I believe I have that correct, which is banks that loan to third world countries, they have gone, quote unquote, woke in terms of not lending money to third world developing countries to expand their natural gas deposits. Although they'll loan money to get your solar panels. So we just gave a big loan to Angola for a solar panel program, even though Angola has been crying for money because they have natural gas reserves and they could, they could use those natural gas reserves to have a clean energy source but no, they get the money for the solar panels, but not for the natural gas. And so you have this, look, Angola, we're, we are a developed country. We're only going to let you develop a certain way. This is now being referred to as green colonialism. We have about, what, a third of the world that are burning wood and dung inside their huts. Is that the approximate where we are in proportion? And they're being told that, oh, no, you're not going to be able to move from your wood and dung to natural gas. We're going to put some solar panels up someplace. (laughs) Someone said, well, let them eat solar panels as a reference. Back to the, so I'm a huge fan of natural gas and I'm a huge fan of nuclear for the very reasons that they're clean. Uh, nuclear has gone is you know we have the nightmares of the nuclear in the past the fukushima the chernobyl events we've learned and so to completely throw something away because of a couple of disasters is uh, not a way to proceed forward so you have after during the ukraine war with russia being a primary supplier of natural gas and petroleum to europe uh, much of europe now is reconsidering uh, their nuclear program. So you have France, you have Canada, you have uh, Sweden, uh, Finland, and uh, many other countries are now reconsidering their nuclear position and they're restarting up their nuclear programs. 
France has been extremely uh, successful yeah, over the years. Yeah, I was France has been as probably the leader. Yeah. One of the things that they were smart on doing is France came up with a nuclear power plant and they stamped it out several times. So you have one model and so you can have a (laughs) nuclear power operator go from one plant to the other. You know, back in the United States when the uh, Three Mile Island event happened, we had, I think, was it two or even three nuclear power plants on there, but two of them struggled during the event. You had two different kind of power plants that were built by two different companies with two different control panels on the same site. And now they've come up with what they call the uh, uh, small modular reactors, mm. which are smaller and can be put you know, more of them, more control over them, safer. We have good uh, technology for I think that would be uh, that would be awesome to see. Imagine a, a community having a small nuclear power plant that creates electricity for the entire community, and and it you know I think I think we're kind of smart once in a while. Although history shows that we are stupid, <laughs> but I think uh, spending time to develop develop nuclear power would be is the answer. So Germany went the wrong way. Germany decommissioned their nuclear power plants a few years ago and went woke on the on the uh, renewables, wind and solar, and now they're suffering because of the unreliability of it. They're suffering to the point where their power costs have gone up fivefold wow and they're actually polluting more because the wind and solar are so uh, unreliable they've had to refire up their coal plants and they're burning lignite coal which is the dirtiest of all the coals so that's what you get from your from your movement in germany you go backwards, five oh, times as much p- for the power, and dirtier. And dirtier. Hmm. And I haven't used this term yet, but being adults, we just need more adults in the room, uh, and we need fewer ideologues. Ideologues think that this is how the world should be. Fine. Yeah. We need people who are going to work with the world as it is, who have a true reality therapy, so to speak, going on, and can make the tough decisions to proceed forward. Well, Shay, we've talked a lot about a lot of things. Is there anything you want to say to wrap up? I want to say that I really enjoyed you and watching you in terms of what here you have. I thought of myself quite a bit when you came into my classroom and that, again, again I was a kid who'd never gone to college, but yet I was, I was smitten by school. I was smitten by learning. I loved it to me. It was kind of romantic. And I think some of that 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 was with you. You said, I'm having some success with this. I'm enjoying it. This is in- very interesting to me. I think I'm going to continue to pursue it. And you did. And it was so fun when you came back to us, I'll say, as a, a teacher. First of all, you came back to the district and you student taught, and then you stayed with us and you taught with our kids. And I loved your fa- your passion for the kids. The kids just just uh, were met or gravitated towards you because they saw something a little different. They just they saw someone who was just a little out of the ordinary, who had another kind of spunk that they that they wanted to catch what was the heck was going on. Always out in the hallway, always engaging with kids, always looking where they are, and don't think that kids don't pick that up. Mm. Not sitting behind your desk, just shuffling papers. You were always amongst them. And then you go on to become an administrator and do great work 
on behalf of kids, I always liked your star that you focused your life on because you remember that kid, that kid that was you. Mm. And whenever you were working with people in the education world, and we know this, that everybody talks about the kids, but a lot of times it's the adults that you're working with. And you weren't afraid to uh, sometimes clash with some of the adults because you were, going, you were there for the kids. And that was something that was always apparent in that, uh, that passion you had for kids and being in the classroom. So I, I just always oh, enjoyed you. that. And it was, it, was, it was a fight for you. It wasn't something that just kind of came out of hand. Yeah. You, uh, there was some fighting and some kicking and some scratching, and I like fighting and kicking and scratching. Well, <laughs> so thank you, and uh, there's a lot that we talked about today. It is. Hey, I appreciate it. You have a glorious day.